on VFBS with Kate Jabot. The legacy in Afghanistan under scrutiny. We had to create the conditions where we would eventually be able to withdraw and allow the Afghans to maintain their own security. And remembering Lady Thatcher's victory in the Falklands. They are reported to be flying white flags over Port Stanley. The best we can hope for is to withdraw from Afghanistan in good order and help ensure the country's prospects are improved. That's the conclusion of the Commons Defence Committee, which has been told the country could easily descend into civil war. Committee Chairman James Arbuthnot says they received starkly opposing predictions for Afghanistan after 2014. In the end, it's going to be within the hands of the Afghans themselves. We by withdrawing, are leaving these decisions as to how their future is going to look to them. And that's always a difficult thing to do. There are lots of things that the Ministry of Defence should now be doing in terms of planning for withdrawal and in terms of committing to the long term for ensuring that the training of the Afghan National Security Forces is as good as it it can be, to ensure that we get proper international aid in there and that we're committed to it, but also by making sure the negotiations for a peace process, are as inclusive as possible. Well, Lucy Morgan Edwards gave evidence to the committee. She was political advisor to the European Union ambassador to Afghanistan. She put forward an alternative strategy in her book, The Afghan Solution, a peace plan with the ex-king, senior tribal leaders and defecting Taliban. Part of that strategy would have been to sideline the strong men and uh, the warlords and not to have people who were accused of previous rights abuses or crimes against humanity as part of the military strategy or part of the political strategy. But unfortunately, the Americans wanted to co-opt those people, the CIA wanted to co-opt those people, rather than making them accountable or having some sort of due process, as we did in the Balkans and as happened in other countries. What we've done is essentially to, to put those very people in power. The difficulty is when the people on the top, the people in power, are part of a network of essentially unindicted war criminals, drug dealers and so on. You can't expect to therefore have impartial judges and and a system of justice. Well, former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Sir William Patey, also spoke to the committee. He's warning getting the Taliban on side won't be straightforward. I recall uh, a senior Afghan saying to me that he didn't think the Taliban would make the necessary compromises for a political settlement until they had been defeated by an Afghan force on Afghan soil in Kandahar. So we may have to, we may have to see that first, but I would hope the Taliban would respond to genuine efforts at uh, political talks and be prepared to make the compromises, but there's the, they are divided at the moment. Well, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond recognises the legacy in Afghanistan won't be ideal, but he says there's been immense progress and that must be recognised. The sacrifice has been uh, huge and we will never forget the uh, sacrifice that has been made to deliver the security of Britain and our allies. That's that's what this was all about. And it was always clear that this couldn't be an an open-ended intervention. We had to create the conditions where we would eventually be able to withdraw and allow the Afghans uh, to maintain their own security so that our security was protected. And I think while the situation is not perfect, we have come a long way to being able to deliver that objective.
With me on the programme this week, as always, is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and we're also joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Rogers, first of all, Lucy Morgan Edwards there says the political strategy in Afghanistan was flawed from the start. Is she right? I think there's a lot of truth in that, particularly the way that many of the people who are essentially part and parcel of the Northern Warlords group uh, really assume quite a lot of power. But beyond that, I think we have to appreciate that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is essentially an American decision taken about 18 months ago, and it is not a withdrawal within any sense of victory. It's a political decision, mainly because of the unpopularity of the war and the recognition that it is unwilling, uh, unwinnable. And Britain is following along with that inevitably as, as the no senior group other than the United States was still only about a tenth the size of the US forces. So it's very much d- driven by a political timetable, and which means that you're getting this extraordinary difference, as the Defence Collect- Select Committee said. You're getting completely different views, very positive views from the Ministry of Defence and from the politicians, very different views uh, from many people on the ground, and it's very difficult to know exactly where the truth lies. Indeed, um, Christopher, uh, political reason, the political timetable Paul was saying there, the Defence Committee was also suggesting that it could be perceived that it was withdrawal because of fatigue, uh, or there was a danger of it being perceived in that way. Do you subscribe to that? Well, there's political fatigue, isn't there? And there's also a sense you can't go much further. There are two points here that have come out of the report. There's partly what Lucy uh, Morgan Edwards says as well. First, get it this way. At the time of the war the Americans decided to go to Afghanistan. Therefore, it's an American war. We've got along, as Paul says, you know, we've got 10% or whatever it is. Um, So we had to go along with it. The Americans did not understand what they were getting into. They had quite good intelligence, but they had appalling, horrible analysis. It's almost as if the Americans had taken the only examples they believed in, not Vietnam, but Central America... People, you know, places like Panama, Noriega, people like that. Who do you support? You get hold of the, you get hold of two or three guys, and you can sort it out, and then you beat up on everybody else. It was an appalling strategic analysis from the United States, and once they were in it, and you weren't going to shift them from that, and we went along with it. And yet, you could argue, uh, Paul Rogers very many things have been achieved. The Afghan security forces are taking the lead. There's an elected government in Kabul and presidential elections due next year. Not a bad legacy. Well, there has been progress and there's been a lot of development, particularly in the north and the west of the country. But there have been many setbacks, quite extraordinary. I mean, it's one of the best indicators is, you remember about four years ago, Britain mounted a huge operation to get a new turbine up to the Kajaki Dam in northern Helmand. The idea was that it would, I think, nearly double the capacity of the dam, provide much more electricity. They did it, uh, but that turbine is still there, hasn't even been unpacked. Four years later, the security conditions are such that they can't bring in the Chinese technicians to actually install the turbine. Um, that's an indicator of the difficulties faced, and the reality is progress has been made, but it's hugely variable. In- See, though, can that, that, I mean, if if it, if it weren't so big, that turbine would have been nicked by now, I promise you. I think what we're... It's a um, question of money, though, with the turbine as well, isn't it? And, and that raises an issue of, it of, is, of the, the long-term uh, future of Afghanistan. And there's where's the conflict between, say, what is a military solution, how do you bring in the development people, etc. But the basic thing is this, and this is what the, the essence of this uh, House of Commons Defence Committee report is this. Um, a lot of progress, 
huge amount of progress. If you take someone like the present chief of the defence staff, when he was there uh, you know, as a commanding soldier, he, he goes back six months and said, you, you can't imagine the differences. And everybody agrees. The House of Commons Defence Committee is fundamentally saying, but what happens when we go? And that is, you know, let's not get away with it. And if you want an example of what happens when we go, just peep a bit sort of the east and the south and you go to Iraq. And there is an example of what happens when you go, when you haven't left a security system in that can cope with the, the, the disruption of the politics. Come next summer, June 14, 1940, uh, uh, 2014, we're going to have a new presidential election. Indeed. That will turn the country upside down. Paul Rogers, on that point of what happens when Britain goes or when ISAF leaves, um, the Commons Defence Committee had been very critical, saying there was very little in information from the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office on that. Um, what do you think Britain's commitment should be post-2014? Well, they're obviously going to continue training. I mean, it's the equivalent of a Sandhurst being established, and I know staff and Sandhurst are involved in that. Um, their commitment should certainly be uh, to continue helping development wherever possible in a way which avoids the very high level of corruption. And I think, obviously, they will aid trying to provide security. Um, but it has to come to some extent from the Afghans. But the, the awful thing is that the way Afghanistan is being left as the troops depart actually makes it much more difficult for the Afghans themselves to develop a viable country. A because? Lot, oh, essentially because uh, you have all the disunity, you have incredible corruption and maladministration. And part of that is due to the bad use of the money that has gone into Afghanistan from outside. All right, Paul, stay with us because South Korea has raised its military alert level to vital. As latest reports suggest, a North Korean missile launch is close. Japan has deployed missile defence systems to downtown Tokyo and America is sending two guided missile destroyers to the Western Pacific. The United States is warning North Korea it's skating very close to a dangerous line. Meanwhile, G8 foreign ministers are meeting in London as we speak and North Korea is high on the agenda. Christopher, is this just fiery rhetoric from North Korea or could missile tests turn into something more hostile? How, how, how easily could that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, you, have to, you have to gauge what is hostile. I mean, the, the act of firing, in theory, if you're sitting in the G8 summit in, in, or the foreign ministers meeting down the road in, in, in London, then it's a hostile act because they're actually firing. Uh, the Koreans, would, North Koreans, will actually say, well, hang on, you do firings, and why shouldn't we test the, the, test the whole thing? What we have to look at is what the North Korean intention is. You also have to look at the fact that um, let us set aside uh, King Jong-un for the moment. Let's have a look, for example, at his aunt, uh, King Kyung-hui, who I always reckon is sort of King uh, Kleb, you know, Rosa Kleb and the Bond thing. She is quite something. She is actually running this thing. Because I mean, everyone until now has been saying it's, it, it, behind this, this is a young man who wants to prove himself. You're saying behind the scenes there are, there oh. are evil forces at work or, or dangerous forces at work. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's not just a puppet. I mean, he's got his own ideas. But there's also a guy called Choi, Marshal Choi, or I think it's Deputy Marshal Choi. And he is, a, he is a bit of a loose cannon. He is very, very much tied up with this. And so that is the difficulty. These guys sitting uh, here, here in London at the G8, uh, they can't make plans. They can't put in, a, in, in something other than, say, Patriot missiles to sort of defend themselves. But the point is, have a look, and we were talking about this last week, I think, the 8th uh, Army Corps in North Korea was shifted about four days ago to the three uh, uh, test sites and when they were shifted, you could bet your bottom dollar was that the, what they were doing were fueling up 
a test rocket for their medium-range rocket because that's where the that's, mm. the that's the role of the Eighth Army Group is a core rather that's the that's the role is actually to defend that when it's done. So they're all sitting there waiting for it to happen, and not one of them has got says, "Well, what do we do once it's happened?" What do we do? That's the big question, isn't it? Um, Paul Rogers, what is China doing? Do you think it can do anything behind the scenes? Will it be doing anything to calm the situation? It will certainly be trying to. Uh, the Chinese are getting r really very frustrated at what is happening. I think there's a real chance that uh, a lot of what is happening in North Korea is, as Chris says, very much uh, a part of the parcel of trying to promote Kim Jong-un as the new leader. It's also directed probably more at Beijing than it is at Washington because the, the leadership is concerned that Beijing is not being as helpful or as positive as it has been in the past. And it's almost a kind of reminder to the, the Chinese that, you know, North Korea is here. There is, though, one other point, and although this is an appalling regime, we need to see also there's a reason which actually feeds their paranoia, and that is that 10 or 11 years ago, they were cited by the world's most powerful state as one-third of an axis of evil, and the United States said it had the right to preempt uh, po possible action. Now, that actually still is there. It still has an effect in Tehran as well, another part of the axis of evil. And in addition to that, um, both Tehran and Pyongyang see that the one country which gave up its weapons of mass destruction, Gaddafi's Libya, has since had a regime terminated. It's a very, very simple way of looking at it, and it seems extraordinary to us, but I suspect there's something there which actually feeds the paranoia you have in Pyongyang. All right, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you for your time today. Still to come, the Good Friday Agreement, 15 years on. It was, by very definition, a political compromise the best that could be achieved at that time in the circumstances which then existed. She was the longest-serving Prime Minister of the 20th century and the country's only female leader so far. For the forces, Lady Thatcher will almost certainly be remembered primarily for taking Britain to war, seizing back the Falkland Islands after the invasion by Argentina in 1982. Peter Russell's report on the conflict starts with those famous words from Margaret Thatcher in Downing Street on her first day as Prime Minister. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error may we bring truth where there is doubt may we bring faith and where there is despair may we bring hope the Falklands war saw her in steely determined mood Argentina invaded the islands without warning on 2nd of April 1982 the advice from the Ministry of Defense was the islands could not be retaken Mrs Thatcher rejected the warning and ordered a task force to be assembled to fight a war 8,000 miles away one early success was the capture of South Georgia. The news was announced by Mrs. Thatcher and her Defence Secretary, John Knott. The commander of the operation has sent the following message. Be pleased to inform Her Majesty that the White Ensign flies alongside the Union Jet in South Georgia. God save the Queen. What happens next, What's Mr. Your... Knott? Thank you very much. What's your reaction, Prime Minister? Just that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. The success of the counter-invasion of the Falkland Islands depended on Britain's two aircraft carriers, Hermes and Invincible. Wary of threats, Mrs Thatcher gave permission for the nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror to sink the ageing Argentine battlecruiser General Belgrano. Within days, it would be the Royal Navy which would be in shock when an Argentine missile destroyed HMS Sheffield. Many more lives would be lost between then and the advance on the island's capital, Port Stanley. The surrender came on June the 14th. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons 
Thatcher's victory strengthened her reputation and led to a landslide majority in the 1983 election. Peter Russell there. Well, Major General Julian Thompson led three commando brigades during the Falklands campaign, and he joins us now. General Thompson, good to speak to you. Um, this was our first female Prime Minister, and here she was taking us to war against the advice of the MOD. Did you have confidence in her and that decision? Yes, I did, and I must correct one thing. It wasn't against the advice of the whole of the MOD. It was, it was Henry Leach, the first sea lord, who found her being told by Knott and the FCO that there was nothing that could be done. He said, there is, and she said, what? And he said, well, you can sail a task force. So it was his idea, actually, uh, and she grasped it very quickly. And to answer your question, yes, I had total faith in her. How did you get on with her? <clears throat> well, I didn't know her then. I got to know her later, uh, when I was responsible for, among other things, uh, the special, the Royal Marine Special Forces. And uh, we used to lay on demonstrations for her, and sometimes uh, she would turn up at, on exercises in, in the COBR, so I got to know her there. And she turned up on one famous occasion for you, um, all because the lady loves milk tray, a phrase which must uh, bring back some memories. Explain. Well, at that time, there was an advert on television about a chap who rushed over mountains and dived into uh, crocodile-infested lakes carrying a uh, box of milk tray, all because a lady loves a milk tray. And I said, when the first chap comes out, up over the side of the ship, where we were giving a demonstration of boarding, he is to give the uh, Prime Minister a box of milk tray. So I warned her bodyguard. I said, when this chap reaches into his wetsuit, he's not going to pull out a gun and shoot the Prime Minister. Please don't kill him. Um, and the first chap over the side did indeed produce a box of milk tray, gave it to the Prime Minister, who was absolutely delighted. One of her aides tried to take it off her, and she slapped his wrist and said, that's mine. <laughs> and was she admired by the troops? She was hugely admired. And a very good example of that was the lunch in the guild hall after the victory march through the streets of london in september 82 and i was actually at that lunch and sitting more or less opposite her and i could see her very clearly and she got up to speak and before she opened her mouth the whole audience which consisted of sailors and marines and soldiers not just all officers rose to their feet and gave her a standing ovation before she'd even said anything. And the expression on some of the other MPs round the table was really amazing. I mean, their jaws literally hit the, t hit the table. They were so astonished. And she deserved it. And, and they admired her. They may not have necessarily always agreed with her politics, but they admired her for her courage. You will be going to the funeral next week. Uh, what kind of thoughts will you be having about her on the day? Well, I will be very sad that she's gone. And I will remember some of the uh, times that uh, I did meet her, and I was always hugely impressed by her. She was a, a wonderful person. She used to listen to what you had to say. She'd argue, and you had to jolly well have the right answer, otherwise you got handbagged. But uh, I'll be thinking about her. Christopher Lee, uh, there was an idea put forward this <clears throat> week by some people at the Foreign Office that Stanley should be renamed Port Margaret in the Falkland Islands. What do you think she would have made of that? She would have thought that, I guess, I guess she would have been a bit embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, one of the reasons that she went and, and took Henry Leach's advice, incidentally, Henry Leach, I remember, he said to me afterwards, he said, I looked at her across the table that night and I said, if we don't go down there, every tin pot dictator is going to go after us. And I realised from the steely look I got from her 
I realised the steely look. I shouldn't have said that. She should have said it. But the reason she went south to, to uh, the Falklands, because it was Stanley, it was all those things, and she would probably rather it was just kept in place and named as it is. Back then, um, the, the defence was facing great cuts as it is today. Oh, what do you think she would have made of today's <clears throat> defence cuts and how would she have handled it? Well, I mean, knowing what she did... Uh, know what happened. I mean, if you go back June and uh, June '81, that's before the the Falklands. Uh, what happened? Uh, her defence secretary, John Knott, uh, really wanted to turn the navy into a submarine navy, so you wouldn't have been able to go down there. No flat tops, nothing at all like that. No surface ships. And but after that war, uh, she got a grip of it, and she recognised that the navy was a bit more than people, including, I'm afraid, John Knott uh, and, and the RF, of course, uh, h- h- had told her. And so I think she, I don't think that she would have uh, been emoti- emotional about it, but she would have recognised that the, the financial side of it had to be balanced by the longer term philosophy of what Britain wanted to do with the armed forces. And I think she probably would have had a tougher idea of what she wanted the armed forces for than we have now. Krista, stay with us and thanks to Major General Julian Thompson for joining us today. This is BFBS <laughs> Sigrep. On the 15th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement yesterday, the man who chaired the Northern Ireland peace talks, former US Senator George Mitchell, said the deal they reached wasn't perfect, but the best that could be achieved at the time. It was, I think, a tremendous step forward. I think it was a good example for others elsewhere of what politically courageous political leaders can do under very difficult circumstances. The political leaders of Northern Ireland, ordinary men and women who had spent their entire lives in conflict, came together at a crucial moment and made very, very difficult decisions for them personally, for their parties, for their entire society that have enabled them to live in, I think, a relatively good peace and hopefully growing prosperity over the past 15 years. Well, Tony Blair was Prime Minister in the run-up to the Good Friday Agreement being signed. The thing lurched from crisis to crisis and yet emerging at the end of it absolutely exhausted after barely any sleep over those days with, with an historic agreement and, and stumbling out into the, into the light, as it were, after all that negotiation and realising something um, profound and historic had occurred because you know, people often forget this, but when we came to power in 1997... The ceasefire had broken down, uh, there were terrorist actions still happening, and, and the thing looked, frankly, pretty hopeless. And even when we did the Good Friday Agreement, at that point, Ian Paisley, obviously, and his party were, were outside the building protesting against it. Well, joining us from Belfast is Northern Ireland analyst Chris Ryder. Hello, Chris. Was the Good Friday Agreement the best that could be achieved at the time? I think it was, but... Um, even with it being the best achievable at the time, it hasn't fulfilled its potential. And we've had warnings in the last uh, couple of days from both Obama and Cameron that um, there is much more work to be done. And if you look at the situation in Northern Ireland at the moment, there is much more work to be done. Sectarianism is as rife as ever. Um, The economy is in a mess. Tourism is in decline. All the plus points that were supposed to be the foundations of the new Northern Ireland have not been delivered on. We so what do you think the priority should be exactly? Well, is to break the stalemate in government. I mean, th- there's a mutual veto between Sinn Féin and the DUP who hate each other, who are not entirely happy with the agreement. One, because the DUP see it as a betrayal. They can't come to terms with the fact that they're on equal terms with the nationalists. 
uh, IRA feel that they've had to settle for a partitionist thing. They don't really like working with the DUP. And that, that has, has filtered down to the communities. Um, there's not much change on the ground. Mm. Uh, Belfast is a better place, a different place. There's not as much violence, but there are still dreadful, dreadful tensions. There's a very, very serious situation developing for this summer, largely because of disillusionment with the politics not working and largely because there's a feeling in the, in, in the most deprived communities that they haven't got any benefit from this deal. And Christopher, there's been this increase in the number of devices being intercepted by the police. A bit worrying. Of course, there are going to be some big summits coming up in Northern Ireland as well. Yeah, we've got uh, summits, you know, for for Manor, for example, when uh, the um, G8 uh, leaders, prime ministers, etc. What's causing this increase? Is is it it infighting? Is it about a show of defiance ahead of these summits? What is it exactly? No, it's, I don't think it's, it, it, it's ahead of the summits. I mean, it's been going on for some time. And it's also the fact that not all the sort of so dis- dissonant groups, and we're talking about dissonant groups, we're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. We can be, we can be talking about small groups, perhaps. But it, it's a perception. It is that the war is not yet done. And also, there's another side of which, which Chris is better to answer this. But I often get the impression that uh, a lot of the people that are taking part in these so-called dissident groupings, um, that's their status. And that is something which I don't think this side of the water we 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 understand so much. Chris, do you think that there's been any change in the kind of entrenched views that existed 15 years ago? No, there's not. that's, That's what Cameron and Obama are frustrated about, that while the agreement created structures to go away with sectarianism, to create integration between the divided communities here. That hasn't happened. Do you have an answer, Chris? Well, the answer is time, and and, um, that's the only answer. I mean, Northern Ireland has come a long way in 15 years. Mitchell himself has said uh, that the conflict lasted for generations. It's not going to be over, probably for generations. When do you think there might be more hopeful, more optimistic kind of results? Well, I think we're moving towards a a cliff at the moment. Um, We have a very tense summer. There are all sorts of difficulties. This could be as bad as 1969 if it it goes into the worst possible scenario. Or on the other hand, both groups might begin to see the dangers and pull back from the brink and we could get through the summer much better. In terms of of the actual concrete... um, a symbolisation of divisions within Northern Ireland is the presence of the peace walls, the so-called peace walls, which yeah. have gone up in number. Yeah, that's right. They're, are they really needed? There are, there are nearly three times as many peace walls as there were at the time the agreement was signed. And they are really needed because there's no significant demand on either side for the walls to be removed. Secretary State Villiers was there yesterday looking at them, and she said afterwards that unless Northern Ireland moves forward, then the British government may have to apply financial sanctions to encourage them. All right, Chris Ryder, thank you very much for your time today. Now, before we go, let's look ahead to next week. More than 700 personnel from all three armed services will take part in the funeral of Baroness Thatcher. Christopher, you're one of the commentators for the BBC's coverage, aren't you? What can we expect? I think uh, the 700, by the way, just remember a lot of those guys, although they weren't in the Falklands, they were her soldiers They're from the units that were in the Falklands, and that is very significant. But just imagine, her body will be taken in the morning from Sir Mary uh, Undercroft in uh, Westminster, Houses of Parliament. As it comes up, as the hearse comes up, she will be just yards away from her closest friend's assassination by the Irish uh, National Liberation Army uh, at Westminster. And she'll be looked down upon by her great hero, Churchill, 
and then along Whitehall, on the left, the Treasury, then which he fought and taught them how to, how to do purse economics. And then the Foreign Office, which he mistrusted as a bunch of camels. They were only interested in the Middle East. And then on the right, you've got the, the Defence Ministry with the great commander statues. And as she comes up into Trafalgar Square, there will be Nelson looking down at her. And it was Nelson's Trafalgar, which she wanted so much, another Trafalgar, during the Falklands War. And then from there, when she is given to the safe hands of the uh, King's Troop, the Royal Horsetary, on the gun carriage and taken down Fleet Street, old Fleet Street, where the ghosts of those editors that fought her so hard. <laughs> then up to the final point, which is up the hill, Ludgate Hill, to St Paul's Cathedral. And there she will be received by Bishop of London, John Charters. When she was there for the Victory Day Parade, as she called it, the service after the Falklands, the then Archbishop of Canterbury preached reconciliation, not victory. And she was so annoyed about that. The irony is the person that wrote his sermon was John Charters, now the Bishop of London. You can just imagine what she would be thinking if she knew it was going to end like this. Christopher, thank you very much for your time today. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS Citrep. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash Citrep. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Jabot, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now.